Hey everyone, my name is Luis Martinez Moura and I'm a founding mentor at Skillful, where top talent comes to launch and accelerate their careers in the tech industry. We run cohort-based programs for roles in strategy, business operations, product, and more. This is Need to Know, where we interview the business operators in tech who you need to know about. Today I'm interviewing Ahmed Bani, COO at WISP, a telehealth company that offers budget-friendly access to primary care, prescription medication, and natural remedies, regardless of health insurance. Before that, he was an early employee at Point as well as Tab Payments, where he led several functions, including business operations. I'm excited to share our conversation today, where we touch on several interesting topics, such as the importance of reflection and personal development, and many more. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's jump in. Well, you know, I actually have a lot of questions about your your professional background. Would love for you to walk me through how you see it and, uh, you know, what the story is behind uh, Ahmed. So uh, I started my career in management consulting did, uh, out of Toronto, did a couple of years at, at Bain, been in startups since. Um, so currently on the third one, the first one was in mobile payments, um, specifically uh, mobile payments for restaurants. Did that for about a year, then moved out to the Bay Area and uh, joined a real estate startup. Um, third employee was there for about five years, led our biz ops, finance, capital markets, grew that up to about you know 100 folks beginning of last year when I left. Then over the past year, stumbled into Mexico and uh, got put in touch with uh, WISP, which is this telehealth company. Um, and you know, one of the founders at Point was a, uh, uh, has been an advisor there for a while, so, so made the connection. Got very excited about this new space and, and joined a, another early stage company, this, this one fully remote and in a new space. And so been, been our COO there for, um, you know, joined over last summer. And uh, you know, new, new, new space, new context, uh, ha- having a lot of fun. Going back to your previous companies, right? Like just taking a, a look through your career background, it seems like you've mostly joined places after you were at Bain as an early employee. At Point and now you're an executive at, at Wisp, so you've gotten the whole, the full gamut of you know experiences at an early stage company. If you were talking to someone, you know, so we have a lot of people in our audience that are young in their careers, are trying to do something new, or trying to move on from a more traditional career background and might be looking at early stage companies, like what sort of person would you recommend for roles at an early stage company? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think there's there's a few different ways to look at it. I guess you sort of bucket it into what are the skills that you have that you, or, or skills you want to get good at? What are the values you have? And, and then what are the personality traits that you have? And so um, when, when you're early stage, I think one of the defining things about being an early stage employee is you know, change is, is a constant. And so not just true for the role because your, your role changes a lot, but ideally, you know, the company stage is also changing really quickly and then you want to be growing with that. And so what that means is, is you have to be a very dynamic person, very comfortable with a big focus on on results. That's a, a big part of early stage success is, is having measurable output that you're constantly working towards and then very comfortable with, you know, learning new things all the time. I think that's that's probably some of the most important stuff from a skill set perspective. It's it's less about specific skills and more about the the skill of developing new new traits and new learnings really quickly. In a very similar way, I think having uh, well, one thing that's come up in a, in a number of, of different environments has been growth mindset and continual improvement as as values. Um, and so the idea that uh, in getting comfortable with learning really quickly, that the biggest part of that is being comfortable failing at it really early. Um, and so failure and comfort with failure ends up being one of the most defining things about can you get up to speed in a new, in a new context really quickly. 
this is sort of like tying all of it together, but from a personality trait perspective, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's uh, how comfortable can you get with uh, being uncomfortable? Let's talk a little bit about failure here, right? Like this is something that um, I tell my mentees uh, through Skillful a lot, which is you're here going through this experience, going through this course, going through this case in order to maximize how much you learn from it, right? And so I want you to focus as much as possible on the things that you are scared of, right? And specifically to go and try and, and try things out that you haven't tried before and see if you can succeed. You're mostly going to fail and that's a good thing. But have you seen anyone um, become comfortable with failure or is this the sort of thing that you have to be innately, that like comes innate in someone's, uh, in, in someone's psyche? Uh, it's totally trainable, it, but it's, it's sort of a matter of how much determination you have at, at getting comfortable there because it's, it can be extremely painful at first. I sort of have this philosophy, and I think I picked it up in some, some blog post probably like 10 years ago, that life is, is a game, and, and more specifically, it's, it's a repeated game. Um, and so the, I think one example that people think of is when, when you go in, into a final round interview, there's a lot of pressure to make that right. And it's true in some cases, but, but the reality is you can do those over and over again. And even the most high pressure one-off situations tend to recur quite a lot throughout your life. And if you can get comfortable you know, playing around with different strategies in situations like that, where the stakes feel higher and it feels like it's more one-off and, and you have to get this one right, th- those, are, those are the situations almost where you want to play around even more than you would otherwise, because you get by trying you know, weird stuff or unique stuff in, in those contexts that that can be one of the biggest, you know, the most uncomfortable things. And if you can get comfortable there, it feels really good. It's kind of like the, you just want to practice it a lot. There, there's another strategy about every time you go to a coffee shop, uh, ask for a discount. I think that one might've been Tim Ferriss, but uh, uh, just, just getting comfortable with failure in, in a lot of different contexts. It doesn't have to be you know, trying a, an entirely new role for that to be that venture. It can be anything that you're doing day to day, but especially the ones where you can you know, flip your mindset from this is really high pressure and this has to go well to this is one opportunity and I'm going to play around and try something weird that you know, may end up being a groundbreaking strategy that no one's ever thought of and, uh, and learn from it and just always, always be trying new stuff and reflecting on how it goes. If I had to summarize it, I think what I'm hearing from you and tell me if I'm wrong is don't go out there and try to minimize failures, try to maximize successes, right? And like, you know, the way to think about it is like success rate might be low, but number of successes will be high. Is that right? Yeah, spot on. Yeah. And the only way to maximize the number of successes is to maximize the number of failures. You mentioned earlier, and just I wanted to get back to it, that this is the way that you approach getting ramped up on new problems and new new contexts, right? You've been at, at several different companies, very different types of problems you were trying to solve, right? Like right now you're in telehealth. Before that, you, uh, you know, at the beginning of your career, you were in consulting, you've done a lot of stuff in between. How do you approach a brand new problem area, a brand new context? Like what are the, what are the specific and like tactical steps you take to try and ramp up? Um, it's a good question. I, I think it's you know, coming back to the same concept of experimentation. I, I do it a little differently every time and kind of learn new things from different strategies. But a couple that have worked well are um, just approaching something with first principles. Um, sometimes the smartest ideas come because you don't have preconceived notions about how something should work. And so thinking about, you know, w- without having any context, what, what would the ideal solution for this particular piece be, given the fact that this is my, my first entry into healthcare, and there's all these pieces of the infrastructure that I don't understand that are probably going to block it. But 
there probably is something from the outside in that that could look better. And then if you can start there and then break down the constraints in, in different ways rather than taking those constraints as a given, that's a, a really valuable one. The other is network, just having having a lot of folks to reach out to. And you can build that up in, in a lot of different ways. And you, you can build that up as you go, uh, as you come across specific problems. But I guess two examples here, you know, for the first time, I'm, I'm having a, a significant amount of ownership over both the engineering side of the company, as well as the financial side of the company. And, you know, my last role did, did a lot of strategic finance or finance from a, from a biz ops angle, but having, you know, folks that have built up finance orgs from the ground up, there's a lot of experience that you can leverage and, you know, skip the pain of trying to recreate the wheel. So I think those two of those are interesting, at least. Yeah. So not just, we talked about leveraging your own failures. You should also leverage other people's failures. Do you mind, can you share a couple of examples of, you know, the times that you've used first principles thinking? I don't know if you want to talk about it with WISP, with Point, like whatever comes first to mind. I'd love to hear kind of how you've approached it and where it's led you to. And the, the phrase that popped into my mind was like newbie mindset, right? It's like you're coming into something, don't overcomplicate it, go in as a newbie and, and, and just see where it takes you. I think that sort of the the very long-term strategy of of the company and the industry as a whole is kind of built on first principles. And, and there's you know, there's an evaluation of the way that healthcare works today. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of different uh, different stakeholders that are involved in the value chain. Different people pay different prices or different groups are paying certain portions. And so what the, the consumer doesn't actually know the full price of what they're experiencing. It's one of the only industries where it's, it's so um, disjointed. As a whole, I think the telehealth industry is is trying to you know, break that down and say, how can we make this a lot more affordable, go a lot more direct to consumers, cut out a lot of the, the middlemen. And uh, um, it, it's a very different approach than what's been you know, attempted in the past, um, past you know, 15, 20 years to, to make healthcare more, more affordable, the direct approach and sort of going in with an assumption that you shouldn't need insurance to have access to healthcare is, is a really big piece of that. Yeah, and I think look, you're you're solving a problem that has not yet been solved, right? Which is like, how do you fix how do you fix healthcare because it's such a complicated space, right? And you just mentioned that as a leader of this company, as COO, you have a good amount of influence on some of the technical side of things, and then also on the financial side of things. As you are building out solutions where there's no playbook, right? How do you decide when it's time to put resources behind a given initiative, right? It's like, hey. I want a to spin up a team to go and attack X, Y, and Z, right? Like, let's say it's the the functionality for a doctor to interface with a patient. Like, how do you how do you decide this is something we're going to put resources behind? Like, what are the markers you're looking for to validate um, validate your decision? A lot of it depends on how you know, revolutionary the the idea is, and so the more of a gap there is between what exists today and, and what you're thinking of building the more validation you want to have that it's the right approach. And so there, there's different ways to do MVPs and tests along the way. There's different ways to gather um, you know, customer information, information, user interviews, user focus groups. There's, there's different ways to think about how the, how the competitive landscape is laid out and where other folks are, um, not, not just where they are today, but where, where they're moving towards and what, what the picture of the landscape is going to look like five or 10 years from now and, and how we want to fit into that. So there's, there's a lot of different data points. The bigger the initiative, the, the more you want to leverage across all of them and um, almost start to build up uh, a real strong worldview uh, around how how all of these different you know, stakeholders and are going to affect the landscape and interact with each other. 
So the, the data points on building for the customer, I think, can, can be one of the most important, which is understanding what the needs truly are. And a lot of companies uh, you know, uh, ha- think they have a sense of it, end up building what they think the customer wants, and the customer doesn't really want it. At the same time, you have a lot of customers who say they want something, and turns out the solution they actually love was one that they couldn't have thought of in the first place. And so there's there's a bit of back and forth between the. It comes down to just getting as much you know data as you can, though the larger the initiative is. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I guess um, it, you you mentioned it. I was going to ask, how do you go and get that data? You mentioned uh, MVPs, right? That's something that I think is, is super unique about the tech industry and something that really molds your thinking around this idea you've already been talking about, about like try and go and learn, right? Like maximize for learning, maximize for number of successes, not for success rate. How do you how do you think about MVPs and how do you spin them up uh, currently at WISP and, and, and in the past? There's a lot of different ways to do it. In in our in my, in my our first startup, uh, the the restaurant payments one, um, we we used Envision to create mockups and you know, interfaces that customers could touch, but you could build them really quickly. I think uh, it, again, it, it really depends. At point, there there were a number of initiatives where it was it was a lot less tech focused and a lot more about can you prove out that you know at least five customers are going to pay for it or you know five different contractors would want to use this this project and. Once you have a you know one or two folks working on that, you prove out some initial results. You can then build a a larger team around that, and, and that that's a lot of what um, BizOps as a function does. Is uh, you know in addition to analytics and strategy and you know um, gap filling roles, uh, there's this whole concept of launching new ideas and having someone who's who's a bit of a generalist be the one to tackle that, prove that it works, and then um, get some real resources behind it. That makes a ton of sense. And so would, would you say that when you're evaluating an opportunity are you and evaluating um, or setting up an MVP, are you setting out to prove your hypothesis or to try and disprove it? And if like, is the absence of disproving it what allows you to move forward or do you need like strong confirmation before you feel comfortable? Uh, it's, it's all a game of inches. I think you want to get early results and then double down on those early results, but you know, doubling down doesn't mean you take it from 5% resources to a hundred. It's, uh, each time you add another, uh, another headcount, you get a little bit more conviction. Um, you've always got your list of risk areas that you're trying to disprove and, and eliminate risks one by one. So as, as you work your way through those lists of risks, you know, we think that these are all the potential roadblocks to this being successful. Uh, we've knocked out one and proven that one's not a roadblock or it's an overcomable one. Now we can add a little bit more juice to to the initiative. Yeah, add some fuel to the fire, right? Like give it oxygen little by little. And so when you're when you're setting up, uh, as you're adding more fuel to the fire, right? As you're adding uh, more resources to a to a project, to a product, to an initiative, how do you, as COO, set up that team for success? Is there anything that you do? Um, what do you need to do in order to feel comfortable taking your eye off of it? There's sort of two different questions there. Well, one is setting up for success, and then one is taking taking your eye off it. So set, setting it up for success, I think, is all about having real real clarity on why and context. And depending on how senior the team is or how experienced the team is, um, you can give varying levels of rope and varying levels of, of direction. One thing that never changes, though, is having really good alignment on what success is going to look like. Um, and so that's that's perhaps the most important thing before you even think about how, how do we build this or how do we start doing it is how do we know, at, at least you know, in the early stages, what's the go or no-go? What's the early test we want to do? 
and in the later stages, what's what's the moonshot scenario where we we've crushed this and this is a really successful initiative? So that kind of clarity up front is is probably the most critical. And from that, you know, there's definitely teams that can take that, run with it, run with it, and try a whole bunch of different stuff. And there's a lot of collaboration on on ideas at this stage, um, and and then just a, a setting up of a testing infrastructure and, and a data structure. And so that that kind of gets to the second piece of you know when would you feel comfortable taking your eye off of it. I mean, if it's a new initiative, generally you get pretty excited about it. And you don't really want to take your eye off of it. Um, what, you, what you want to do is have a team that can kind of iterate and apply learnings very quickly. And so uh, taking your eye off of it maybe means taking your eye off of the process a little bit, but you've got your dashboard set up. You can plug into it. You can see how progress is running. Um, you can see what the strategy is. You can go and poke holes in the strategy, make sure the team is thinking about it in the right way, and then start to, to kind of poke and prod at different directions we can take it while empowering the team to be the one to make the decision on what we want to test next. Absolutely. Never get between an exec and their and their dashboard. I can <laughs> I can attest to that. But yeah, speaking speaking of dashboards and metrics, one of the one of the markers I've seen of the best run teams and most aligned teams in my career has been a a shared understanding of the North Star, right? You were talking about this. It's very important to speak the same language. What are the metrics you're looking at day in, day out, right? How do they break down? What areas are they in? How do you think about them? It's fairly simple for us. I think we're, we're still a young enough company, even though we've built up a, a very large patient base or customer base. We've got three metrics for the year, top line revenue, um, customer happiness, or you know, we, we use NPS, um, big fan of it coming from Bain, um, and uh, retention. Um, so how, well, what's the frequency of repurchase and what's, what's the total LTV of, of different patients, different cohorts, and different uh, product categories. So those are the three top line. You can kind of break them down in different ways. And uh, they, as you do different types of um, you know, analyses and, and segmentations, you can have that guide the strategy a little bit. But what you really want for a company level are at most three different things that you're working towards. And ideally, it's really just one of them that's that's your North Star. Would love to understand how NPS made it to be a top-line metric, right? Because I've seen other places where NPS is kind of a, a sub-metric to retention, for example, right? If your NPS is high, your retention of customers is going to go along with that. Um, or NPS is a sub-metric of acquisition because the happier your customers are, the more they'll refer you, the, the more organic growth you'll have, right? And so how, how did you guys arrive at, at this state of having NPS right at the top, in the top line there? I think there, there's a couple things. One is something we alluded to at the, be, the beginning of the conversation around uh, how, how broken the traditional healthcare system is. And so what, you know, what's allowed us to thrive is, is the absence of a very good NPS. And as a result, we've built a really strong one. And it's become core to our philosophy that the patient experience on the whole is a lot more important than just getting the revenue or just, just having that, that one transaction go smoothly. Um, it's, it's what kind of long-term relationship can you build? And that, that starts from, it, it, it comes from every single interaction from, from the marketing they see before they even hit your website to what the website looks like, to the interaction with the doctor, the interaction with the customer service team, and then all of the interactions that happen post-purchase. Um, and so it, it, it really is an, an all-encompassing core metric that, um, is, is almost the foundation of those other two. It's less of a, a, you know, a subset or a pillar, but it's the foundation that drives all of it. Right. It's the through line of your company. It's the, it's the competitive differentiator between you and the traditional players and maybe even your, your competitive set. Right. Ultimately, I think 
what people don't realize from the outside when when you they think of you know let's call them generalist roles in tech right like that can be the biz ops the partnerships the finance the analytics you know um, all these different roles they have varying degrees of everything right varying degrees of project management requirements varying degrees of you know hard skills required and and everything like that that being said if you had to if you had to speak to you know uh, Ahmed coming out of uh, out of Bain and had to say you know really generalize your advice given that he's not going to know really what the world of tech and early stage companies and even growth stage and public companies look like, what would you say is the infallible toolkit, right? If it's like, hey, you don't know what you want to do, but let's maximize your chances of, of landing something you'll find interesting. Here's the like three things you should go and develop to make sure that you're a competitive applicant and that and that people want to bring you on board. At that early, I, I think they're like, well, one, one really helpful skill is perspective. Um, being able to transition from being in the weeds to being macro and having having clarity at both levels, but the ability to go back and forth really quickly. The the reason I say that is one of the most important things in early stage is, is to get results and to be dynamic. You get results by understanding at a really deep level what the company needs. And so that's that's a very high level picture of um, what, what are we trying to do? What's the strategy? How, do, how does my smaller piece of it fit into that overall strategy and and what does ultimate success look like and then you want to go really deep into that particular thing that you're working on and figure out at a micro level what what are the the tips or tricks or strategies that are going to work to get me to those results um it's something that it's it's difficult skill um because it's it's just hard to, to be thinking about two very different problems that are also very difficult problems at the same time for like a, a very quick career growth, I think it's probably the most important thing. Beyond that, though, I think that there's it, it's it's sort of just having a, a really good attitude about learning, about failure, about diversity, and um, if if you're trying to get into at least in the context of, of early stage operations, that you know a, a very good attitude of being able to handle the chaos, but being able to provide a little bit of structure and not just solely thrive in the chaos. Um, again, it's kind of a, a balance between between those two in the same way that there's a balance between the micro and the macro in terms of your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, now you've got me picturing the Joker just running around, putting, <laughs> setting things on fire within an organization. That's uh, what early stage feels yeah, I mean, like. There's always one Joker. <laughs> well, there you go. But I mean, I guess th- this makes me think about, you know, how do you, how do those skills map onto you as a person? Right. And one of the things um, that I talked about with uh, one of our previous guests and Andre Sharu is is the concept of of superpowers, right? And and um, his take was, you know, that's one of the most important things you could do is identify what what are your what are things that come innately uh, innately to you. But would like to generalize this question a little bit more for you, which is, if you had to call out today, what are your superpowers? Right? What are the skills that you over index on and are you know in the in the upper percentiles for uh, within your peer group? And then would love for you to break apart, look, this is one that I was born with, and this is one that I had to work on, and we'll, we'll go from there. I think we, we've touched on a bunch of them, but the, the, the changing perspectives is a really big one, going from big picture to small picture. I almost call it like a, a thirst or a yearning for learning, um, and with that comes that comfort with, with failure and embracing failure as the best source of learnings. Success doesn't teach you that much. Failure teaches you a lot. The bell's... The bells toll in agreement with you, uh, from what I can hear behind you. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the best yeah, parts about living in Mexico, um, the, the sound effects you get. 
so I, I think those those two are really big, and uh, the the learning piece is a skill set in itself. There's different strategies about how to get up to speed in a new area really quickly. None of those were were innate to me. Those those were all learned and you know painfully developed over time. If I had to add one, it sounds like you sound like the sort of person that doesn't make the same mistake twice, right? And I think that's something that uh, all of us have, not all of us, many of us have to get better at, right? It's like, how do you make sure that once you once you make a mistake, you identify the the root cause of it and how to create processes that, that ensure you're not you're not committing it again. And so I want to use that as a say, I just created my own segue here um, into, into my next question, which is what are the major pitfalls that you see people make early in, the, in their career? And this can be, you know, like, Take it as you will. That this might be people trying to transition into tech. This might be people at early stage startups. You know, anything at all. It's like, what are the big holes in the ground that that people should avoid? I think that was sort of it, which is um, not taking time out of the week to to reflect. And the, the reflection can be you know, past looking, reflective on on how things went and how did all those fun experiments I wanted to run in different parts of my life go. What do I want to learn from those? But then also, how do I think about what 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 that big picture is again going forward, and how my my work should be aligned to that? What's really easy to do, especially at you know startups, is um, to get too busy to to reflect, and you end up getting in the cycle of having every minute of your day be be filled with something that in the moment might feel productive, and you look back at the end of the week, and um, they didn't really add up to to what they could have added up to if you were more deliberate about where your time went. It's counterintuitive in the moment because you think I've I've got all these two things on my to do list that I have to get done this week. I've got call it forty hours of work or of capacity this week and eighty hours of stuff on my to do list. So I already can't get to half of my to do list. I just got to fill up the rest of the week with what I think is the most important. But if if you actually reduce that forty hour capacity to to thirty two and blocked off an entire day just to think about planning and reorganizing. You might find that some of the stuff you shifted off are actually much more impactful when combined with some of the other things, or there was some new stuff that you weren't even considering that you know making making the space for you to reflect and strategize and, and reprioritize brings brings bigger impact a lot quicker. And so it's if you're not in the practice of introspection, um, journaling, and things like that, it's it's tough to get into it. But once you build a routine out of it and it becomes second nature. Um, it, yeah, I'd almost say that's another superpower. Is I mean, it's it's not really a superpower, but it's just taking the time to to think about things and make sure that you're approaching things in the best way possible, um, especially when things feel too busy to do it. I mean, we talked earlier about being results oriented, right? And uh, and output oriented. It, the output it's having makes it a superpower. So I disagree with you. It, it sounds like it absolutely is. To clarify a little bit what you're talking about there, what how do you? How have you fitted into your schedule, right? You're talking about it, like maybe you take a day off, maybe you journal, like how does that look in the week, in the average week of vomit? So I think this is one where where you should definitely experiment with it. Um, try a whole bunch of different things and see what works for you. There's, there's a lot of different strategies out there. So on, on a personal level, what I've arrived at is, is optimal is Wednesday is my no meeting day. Um, and Wednesday morning especially is, is my totally locked, don't even schedule something internally here. Um, and, uh, it, it turns into a, a nice break in the middle of the week where I can kind of pause on the first half of the week and reflect on the next half of the week. Um, so it's, it's the right time for me. I think if I haven't done that, then that, that time starts to you know, just be the weekend. Historically, I've actually gotten some of my, my very best thinking done on the weekend, doing other stuff. 
And so there's different ways to make space for it and, and different ways to, to think about it. But um, sometimes I use that time for, for journaling. Sometimes I use it for, for planning. Sometimes I use it for adding structure to you know, what previously was a bit of a, a brain dump of, of interesting ideas that might not fit together. Sometimes I, I use it for um, for data gathering, you know, chats with different folks, whether it's in the industry, internally, um, customers, um, all, all these different potential sources of data that can help inform this thinking. Um, it's important to make time for kind of all, all of those diff- different strategies. So I won't do all of them every single week, but I will do something every Wednesday morning. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I guess that's how you deal with having too many things going on, right? But you also, you work in what I presume is a massively um, stressful job, right? Like you have a lot on your shoulders, a lot going on. How do you deal with the amount of stress that, uh, that comes your way on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's one where, where I've experimented a lot. And I've, I've actually got a, you know, a Google Doc of like a seven-step strategy now. Um, started with a one-step strategy and over time added to it. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different things. Um, you know, there's finding a, a nice environment to be in that helps a lot. The meditation helps a lot. Um, one, one of the biggest strategies though, is, is, is sort of the output of this reflective time. Um, and, uh, one, one of the, the causes of, there's two big causes of stress that have come across in, in the past year or so. One is, uh, when expectations are, are different from reality and there's, there's frustration that comes out of that for, um, in, in any context. And the other is when there's there's so many things to do that all feel super important that I know I'm not going to get to them, or if I do, I'm going to have a miserable time doing it. And so the reflection helps helps with both of those sides of both both of those um, you know, sources of stress. On on the expectations reality side, you, you can you know, reimagine why expectations missed reality, um, and and how you can readjust your your expectations going forward to better align with reality, or figure out what strategies you could have done differently to change what the reality was. The other side is is when there's just too much to do, and and that that just requires a deliberate reassessment of how do I reallocate my own resources and other resources I have at my disposal to to address them, in conjunction with which of them can I realistically put off until three weeks later or four weeks later instead of this Friday. When you figure out what your plan is and something happens to uproot that plan, the most important thing for me has been to pause and, and adjust and think about how how this new reality needs to be reshaped to, to get back to something that looks like a sustainable plan for the next you know, four or eight weeks. Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on. To our listeners, this has been Ahmed, COO at Wisp, um, a telehealth company. Go check them out. I've been Luis Martinez Morin. This has been the Need to Know podcast by Skillful. 